0: Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. This is episode 10. Today, we're going to be talking about a couple economic misunderstandings. Oh, we're not going to be reading from an article today for a couple reasons. One is I haven't written an article about economic misunderstandings, and I don't think I will because on my site, nobody ever reads any of my economic articles. I mean, ever most of the other ones will have maybe 100, 200, maybe even 300 reads, but um, the economic articles, I'm lucky to get, I don't know, 10? So it's really not worth my while. I found that most people are pretty comfortable with listening to somebody who's not a professional philosopher explain philosophy. Um, it's been said that you can't avoid doing philosophy. You can only avoid doing it badly. Um, it's something that's a lot more democratized. Sure, we have a lot of professors, we have a lot of experts on the subject, but it really doesn't preclude regular people like you and I, well, I don't know who's listening. Maybe you are a professional philosopher, um, from, from making our own comments. You know, it's something that we could all practice. And to an extent, theology is the same. Study of scripture is the same. Nobody asks, wait a minute, what are your credentials to tell me what this, what this gospel reading means? We just kind of take it for what it's worth economics is not the same. Most people don't really care about some random Joes pontificating about an economic topic. We kind of look for a degree or at least some type of bona fides for that. Um, so I'm actually going to give you a few of mine. I hate to be, uh, you know, Bobby Braggs a lot over here. I certainly don't have a lot of credentials in this subject, but I do have some. So I'll kind of lay out what what I do know and uh, why I know it and why you uh, might want to believe me about some of these economic misunderstandings. Of course, do your own research. Check it out yourself. I think everybody should have understanding economics as one of their hobbies. Um, First thing is, I do have a very small amount of formal education in this. I studied business, so um, I did class on finance, investment, um, stuff like that. Um, I think I only took three actual economics courses, but um, I got I got A's. Um, one of them I got 106. I got every single question right on every quiz, homework, and test, and all the bonus questions right. Maybe except for one bonus question? Anyways, yeah, 106, so that's good. So that's, that's all my formal education. Um, it's definitely been a hobby. I listened to uh, Econ Talk, London School of Economics, a whole bunch of different stuff like that. Um, read a little bit of economic papers here and there, parts of books. I'm terrible at finishing books, so I'll jump around, so I won't say that I, I finish too much. Um, I've been, um, I took a, <laughs> a bit of a time as an amateur lobbyist, you could say. Um, so I met with some some candidates and some lawmakers at the state level in my home state of Virginia. And I would explain different economic and uh, political issues with to them and uh, try to push my proposed solution. In fact, a lot of the articles on the site kind of come out of that overall endeavor. So you'll probably get a little bit familiar with the work I did on that. Um, for instance, the, the Oregon market, episode, which was, I think, just a couple episodes ago, that was one that I pitched to some lawmakers. Um, so I've been reasonably successful, I would say. So you you may know the, at this point, kind of recent news that uh, Virginia legalized uh, some forms of marijuana. Now, I am um, in a unique position where I am anti-marijuana, but pro-legalization. And I had a key, um, key part to play in actually persuading a certain key, um, key person in government to get that thing through. Um, so I, I don't take full credit for that because, you know, with our political system, there's always lots of, lots of cogs. There's lots of things at play, but that's an example of, uh, one way that you guys might know about that I've been participating in this stuff. Um... I was also chosen for a as a campaign advisor, particularly on economics, um, during a uh, during an election. I think it's two years ago or so, and uh, I it was a Democratic candidate, and they asked me to to kind of come on board to advise. I met with them. I am far from being a Democrat, um, and luckily, after um, after a few visits, they were far from being a Democrat too, and that particular candidate became a uh, like a closet libertarian conservative or something. Um, So I was able to, uh, I guess, effectively brainwash them. Um, So I was, um, I was asked to do two crash courses in economics for them. Each one was about three hours. And I taught the candidate, oh my goodness, um, everything from basic supply and demand to talk about consumer and producer surplus and what the effect of taxes and regulations would be. So, um, I mean, it was a volunteer kind of position. I I didn't ask for any type of payment. Um, But yeah, that's, that's, oh man, did I miss anything? I don't know. Um, I suppose that's about it. So a small amount of formal education, um, lots of interest as a hobbyist, and uh, dabbled uh, in in politics from time to time, met with some lawmakers, did some uh, amateur lobbying. So that's my credentials. Um, I don't know if that warrants listening to me or not, but I hope that uh, as I clear up some of these misunderstandings, um, it's not going to be an appeal to authority as if as if I was one, but instead I can kind of um tease out with 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 reason why you should reze- reject some of these common myths. All right, let's begin myth number one uh profit is always taking advantage of somebody. I think this one's pretty common. People will say, look at these big corporations. They make this massive amount of of profit. Therefore, they are um, exploiting their workers or exploiting the environment or, I don't know, exploiting something. I think this is a big and popular misunderstanding. So let me just lay out three scenarios for a company. So imagine the first company doesn't make profit. In fact, they make negative profit. We call a negative profit, a loss. So that's our first scenario. The next is they break even, just perfectly neutral. And the final one is they make a profit. So what does this mean for the transfer of resources and the manipulation of resources as a whole in our economy? So in option one, you can imagine that resources come from the economy to the business. And then um, let's say the value is, I don't know, um, $10,000. So that's the value of the resources that, that came in. This could be in the form of labor. It could be in the form of, um, of uh, natural resources, um, all services that the company buys. So $10,000 worth of resources come into the company from the economy. And then let's say only $9,000 worth of, of uh, value comes out. So they create something and they can only receive $9,000 um, for in exchange for the things that they've produced. So now they have a loss of $1,000. So what exactly does that loss represent? Well, it actually represents lost resources, lost value, because the resources that came out, the value of them, was less than the amount of resources that went in. So all the things that they did inside of that company actually destroyed value for just society at large. But here's the cool thing about our system. Society at large doesn't actually have to, um, to bear the cost of that. Instead, the company has to bear the cost of that. So in essence, whenever a company loses resources or diminishes the total value Um, through their operations of taking resources in and and putting different resources out, they bear the burden um, for any type of loss. So that's our first scenario. The next one is, well, let's just give an example of that. Imagine for a moment, um, what's a good example? Hang on, hang on. I have a wonderful one. I even wrote this one down. I liked it. That's a lot of lead up. I hope you guys aren't. Too amazed. Okay, here we go. There's a company that starts and uh, it takes houses and it grinds them up and it turns houses into paper and then it sells the paper. So let's you know imagine that this is a horribly inefficient process. So it takes valuable houses that people would have paid a lot for, and it creates well paper. And you know paper has some value, but it might not have a ton. And certainly, the paper that they produced in total doesn't have more valuable than the houses that went into uh, the making of that paper. Because clearly, it's a ridiculous company. Uh, There's much better ways to go about producing um, that desired product. So that would be an example there. And I try to make these examples at least slightly ridiculous or, or at least odd so that they can stick in your memory. So the second example is a company opens up and it buys green cars. And it paints them blue. And then it sells them again. Now it is true that people overall seem to, produce, or seem to prefer blue cars. Um, and uh, people don't buy too many green cars. It's a big mystery to me, by the way. And I might do a, a small episode on that. Why aren't there more green cars? But in the case of a company who takes on this as their business model, they are taking green cars and blue paint, they're taking that from the economy in total, and then they're combining these to make blue cars, and then they're selling blue cars back into the economy. Now, if they have zero profit, this means that the cost of the green car, plus the, the blue paint, plus any other things like paying the painter and whatnot, as you can imagine, all of that sums up to the exact same amount as how much they get when they sell the uh, the newly blue cars. So in this case, we can say, well, what happened for society as a whole? Well, resources went over into a company and the same amount of value comes out of the company. So what's this value? What's this company worth? Well, nothing, right? Um, If the market knew that uh, forever and always they would do exactly that, only cover their cost, then uh, the value of the company would be zero um, because the um, future earnings of the company is zero. Um, And if there's a company with a worth of zero, these are probably going to be pushed out. People would have better places to put their money because if you imagine you invested in one of these, then you would put $100 in. And, uh, well, they wouldn't lose your money, but it also wouldn't grow. It would just kind of kind of sit there and lock up your money in a not very productive endeavor. So that's the second option. And the final option is that they make a profit. So, um, you know, I'll give us an example of uh, when you grow corn, you take the corn stalks and you can feed those to animals. So how much are corn stalks worth? Well, not much. They're kind of a byproduct of anything, of of just the corn that you're growing. So corn stalks aren't worth much. But you can feed them to, I think, pigs. Now, how much is a pig worth? Well, I mean, if you have a big, fat pig, I suppose you could sell that for meat. So in that case, we're going to take that as an example of a profitable business where we have somebody buying um, just waste vegetable matter feeding it to pigs and then selling pigs so it must be tiresome at this point but i really want to drive it home the value of the resources going into the company is less than the value of the resources coming out of the company so whenever we have that kind of positive difference that means that the society as a whole is getting wealthier right we're actually creating new value from the resources that we had um, before the company started its activities. So the difference between the, um, the costs that the company has and the revenue that the company has is called profit. So if we look at companies which are profitable, we can understand these are the ones which are using resources wisely and making society more wealthy. Ones who are in scenario two and doing nothing are just, well, exactly that, doing nothing really of value. And finally, ones which lose money are ones which are destroying value in our society. These are bad companies. And of course, they foot the bill for that, unless we bail them out. That's a different option, Um, one that we don't like. So that's the deal with profit. Um, I don't think that that means that profit is bad. Not at all. I'd say that Clearly, profit is a good thing. Now, I haven't explained one other type of profit. And um, if you guessed it, I am very impressed. I call this, I call this, everyone calls this, the consumer surplus. So I explain the producer side of the equation, but there's also the consumer side. So in a competitive market, when you buy, let's say, a gallon of milk the producer of that milk makes some amount of profit. And that's the producer surplus. That's the um, the excess value that they got um, after all their costs and everything were covered, right? So producer surplus is their profit. And they get that in the form of money. But consumers don't get that in the form of money. We get that in the form of a product and not having to pay a lot of money for that. So... When I go to the store, I would buy milk even if it was, I don't know, even if it was five or six dollars a gallon, if I had no other option, I'd still pick up my gallon of milk. Um, But, you know, fortunately, uh, well, I guess now it's like four dollars, but for a while I was buying it for, I think, two dollars and twenty-something cents at Walmart a gallon. Well, that means that I've received... um, uh, a substantial amount of value in that transaction, I would be willing to pay more. But look at that. I don't have to. Um, so there's this type of um, benefit that that we get as consumers. So whenever we have a... So the ideal is that we have profitable com- pump companies which are in competition. And when they're in competition... That means that we're going to have space for consumer surplus. Now, now, why is that? Well, imagine we have two milk companies. One has decided that it's going to um, increase its profit and it's going to charge uh, $10 per gallon for milk. Well, how much milk will it sell? I, I mean, a couple people might uh, buy that from time to time. But the real question is, what is it compared to its, its competition? And um, maybe their competitor seizes the opportunity to put their milk up for nine dollars and fifty cents. And now, given relatively equal quality, the consumers look at the two and realize, well, I would I would rather only pay nine fifty for the same product than ten. And almost all of the consumers will make that choice. So really that company wasn't able to increase their profit because they set the price too high. And the second company that dropped it to 9.50 would receive all of that revenue as everybody makes that decision. Well then maybe company 1 recognizes that well it kind of messed up and it sells it for $8. Well then the other company will sell it for 7 and there comes this race to the bottom. And eventually we find an equilibrium point. And that's the point where, oh man, I'm going to go into a bunch of things here. Well, there's a number of things going on. But to simplify it, um, uh, firms which can't keep up with that race will get out of the race. So ones which aren't efficient at making milk will want to leave that market because other people can outcompete compete them there. And eventually we'll hit a point where we have... Um, a couple producers, which are all making an average or normal profit. Um, So when they look around at all the things they could do, they say, well, milk producing is still pretty good. Um, And some of the firms have left, so that allowed them to hold a profit margin, which keeps them in business and makes their activity um, still worthwhile. Uh, But not so many have left that um, they now have some type of monopoly power that allows them to extract massive amounts for their milk productive production and thereby lures firms back into the market um, because alternative producers realize that they could get into this newly lucrative milk business. So the market finds some sort of equilibrium as producers decide to produce more or less based on how much they'll get. Consumers always want to um, buy the uh, the cheapest milk given the same quality, or buy the highest quality milk given the same cost, and that pulls in one direction. The companies always want to um, to get the most that they can for for what they made. So the balance between the producers wanting to get a lot, the consumers wanting to um, to pay a small amount, sets the price. And if you really want, I can oh, – I don't want to go into the supply and demand di- diagrams. I try to keep this in a non-mathematical, non-graph-based kind of way. Um, one of my pet peeves is the overly mathematification – is that a word? – of economics. If I asked most people – I know this is a bit of a tangent. If I asked most people um, who are the most influential economists of all time – You might say, well, um, Adam Smith, uh, Karl Marx. He was a terrible one, but he was influential. Um, Maybe Milton Friedman, uh, Hayek, uh, people like that. Uh, None of those people gave us giant equations and were known for all of the regressions that they ran. They're more known for the books that they wrote. Um, Economics for a long time looked more like philosophy. Um, It looked more like history. It was one of the liberal arts. It wasn't a math. It wasn't some type of subset of statistics or something. So I think that's still the best way to understand it. Um, I come from more of the Austrian economic perspective where I think much economics can, in fact, be done from an armchair. I I don't disparage the work of more empirical um, economists. I think they have their place. But I'm going to try to put this more in a – hesitate to say story form, but that's what I'm trying to do, the kind of if-then cause and effect and move through what's happening. So to kind of sum up right now with regard to profit, we have profit defined as um, an increase in total value, right? Because we explain the resources coming in, the resources coming out. And that's a good thing. And then this increase in total value gets divided, And it gets divided between the producers and the consumers. So we all benefit from companies acting efficiently with their resources. All right, Um, now one place we could go from here, but we will try not to, is where does that profit go? So I'm just going to give you a a, a little bit of a run through about where the profit that the company has goes. Um, One is they can hold on to that profit. That's called retained earnings. They can use that to uh, pay off debts or um, they could invest in new resources, uh, expand production, increase the quality of what they're doing, all sorts of stuff, basically investing in themselves. The other thing they can do is they um, they can give it away. So when they give it away, these are in the form of dividends. And a dividend means that if you own a little bit of this company, then you receive some of that profit. So if you're very upset about companies making high profits, I suggest um, that you find the one you're most upset at that seems to be quote-unquote ripping the people off, which we found that's not true, the most, and go ahead and buy a couple shares. Um, That's pretty much open to anybody as far as a publicly trading company. You can go ahead and purchase shares and then you can be the recipient of the producer surplus. Um, So either they pay you in dividends or it's just accruing internal to the company. And that means that the stock price or the value of an individual portion of that company will rise because it's slowly accruing revenue through its productive activities um, inside of the company structure. Um, and that's also why, well, I guess this is another economic uh, misconception, that's why the stock market is not gambling, not even close. Gambling is a zero sum or even a negative sum game, where you at best have a 50-50 chance of beating your your opponent. Um, the stock market, there is trading that goes on, um, however, investment is about um, estimating the future sum of a stream of earnings and then figuring out the present value of a portion of that stream. I know that was a little bit of a technical um, definition, but I don't think it's overly technical. I think everybody is very smart. Um, So when you own a bit of Ford, you own a little bit of their revenue stream. And that's what gives that stock value. That would be different from, say, uh, buying gold or buying Bitcoin. And yes, there will be a Bitcoin episode at some point. Okay, moving on. Um, That's what we have to say about profit for the moment. The next common misconception I want to talk about is that somehow socialism or the new buzzword thing, distributism, is uh, more Christian than the free market, or as some people call it, capitalism. That's actually a Marxist pejorative against uh, the free market system. So I I prefer the free market as the term that I use. I think that this is a ridiculous misconception. That's absolutely not true. So the way that I um, describe these two systems is one is a take before you make, and the other is a make before-you-take model. So the question is, which one of these is more Christian? One where you have to serve somebody else before you're served? Or one where somebody serves you before you have to serve them? Right off the bat, I think that our uh, golden rule alarms are ringing somewhere, and we intuitively recognize that one of these is a lot more Christian. It's a lot more Christian to say, I will serve somebody else before I myself am served. So I call this a make-before-you-take model, whereas socialism and distributism is a take-before-you-make model. So the free market is based around the idea that you first have to produce something for somebody else before you demand that they produce something for you. That is the fundamental feature that differentiates um, these systems. Well, there's a couple features, but we will focus on that one. Um, I don't want to go on and on about this. I think this one's a a point which most people just um, just clicks with them when, when you put it that way. So if you say, hey, we should have distributism, then you're taking from a bunch of people by force, then you're giving it out you're giving money to other people in the distribution and then they're taking that money and money is a way of demanding that other people work for you or give you things and they get that prior to having to go and work for other people i think that that is just intrinsically backwards and wrong and with such a system that, that with that as a as a core that just makes it antithetical to the whole Christian pers- position. We believe that there are certain structures in government, in law, and in economics that can be um, that can train us in virtue, and these can be entirely secular. And I think the market, in large part, helps to train people in virtue. And socialism, and even distributism, uh, they train people to some extent, more or less, in vice. So socialism teaches you to be dependent on the government and it starts to break the real relations of peace that people would have formed with family, with neighbors, with employers, Um, whereas the free market is teaching the golden rule. The free market um, calls upon the creativity of us. We are by nature secondary causes. God uh, produced us on this earth to make and to till it, um, to grow, to keep it and to bring it under dominion. And the free market does an awesome job of doing exactly that. Okay, let's just move to the next one. Price gouging. At the time of the podcast, we have, um, we have gas prices soaring, and people are complaining that we have uh, different suppliers who are quote-unquote gouging. This, might be the, this is a more minor point than the other, but it really bugs me. I want to gouge my ears out when people say this. Now, we already gave the milk example where we talked about how um, there's competitive pressure um, amongst people who are um, producing a given product. This is also very, very, very true in, uh, in fuel in fact, it's one of the most competitive markets there is. Most people see all gasoline as exactly the same, and it's certainly quite similar. It's, in fact, a commodity. And people only make the decision based on price. Maybe convenience, but certainly people um, look to see what's advertised, what, a- what is advertised is a price per gallon, and they make their decision on that. So this is a very competitive market, and uh, margins are pr- pr- typically pretty slim. You have to sell in pretty large volume to make money as somebody selling gasoline. And um, although the profit margin can change, there's good reason for a change in a profit margin. And when there's a profit margin that starts to soar, that is the market um, ringing the alarm bell and saying, hey guys, people are demanding a lot of this particular resource. However, the suppliers cannot keep the supply high enough to keep the price at a low level. Therefore, with high demand and low supply, the price is high. And this high price can mean that the profits are high for the suppliers, though not always. There's many reasons why a price can change. It's not just demand. It's not just supply. But if the profits are rising a lot, then this is the signal for other companies to add to the supply. So we might say that the um, the oil refiners make a blend of gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. They uh, have some turn into plastics. There's many uses for uh, for the oil they receive. And if all of a sudden there's a massive spike in the profitability of gasoline, well, then they're going to say, I can make a higher margin if I increase the gasoline production, in comparison to, say, the diesel or the plastic production or things like this. So they're going to balance the output of their resources in accordance with the desire of the market. Um, So price gouging is... It's just an incentive for more people to come and meet demand. And that's a good thing. Um, prices work. Prices distribute goods and services in ways where nobody but God could distribute it as well. Um we'll have to do an entire episode on how magical the price system is but people really take it for granted people don't understand how how beautifully it orchestrates unbelievably complicated things uh, globally without any need for um for central planning or direction it's um it's about as close to magic as we have um so yeah, price gougers are not evil. Um, price gougers are people who, um, who ought to get higher than normal market returns because they are um, jumping into a market which is very difficult to supply a given good um, in the quantities that are currently being demanded. I could say more, but we'll wait until there's like, I don't know, a hurricane and there's some type of news story about generators not getting somewhere. Let's move on to the next one. Two, 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 two. Oh, oh, this one bugs me. Landlords are evil. I hear this one a lot. There's a lot of hating on landlords. And um, I am a landlord. Um, I have a a few properties. I like to think I am very nice to my tenants. I really am probably too nice to the tenants. Um, And I don't think I'm evil. I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I am blind to my own evil, but I don't think so. There is nothing wrong with um, buying a house and renting it to somebody. And I think people who um, examine renting versus buying realize that buying a house overall, over time, is actually a much better use of resources than renting. And then they conclude that since people are renting, they must be either ignorant or oppressed or something like that. I think they're just making a really uh, poor conclusion. First, um, there's a lot of variability in the cost of uh, of owning a home, and there's very little variability in the cost of renting a home. Uh, for instance, I... Oh, what's the last repair I did? Okay, um, last repair was I had an HVAC unit fail, and it needed a new blower motor, needed all sorts of stuff like that. It probably would have been I don't know a thousand fifteen hundred bucks um to have somebody professionally do it. I went down there, fixed it for I don't know maybe a hundred and fifty two hundred bucks. It wasn't too bad. There were some parts local to it, and that's something that that I can do that a lot of homeowners would not want to to attempt. They would probably have a a job which is a lot less flexible than mine. And they wouldn't be able to, uh, they wouldn't have been able to to do that. They would have had to hire somebody. And a lot of people don't have that $1,500 to just pay somebody. And they probably would have had to wait at least a week to two weeks in order to get a professional out there. Because, well, there's not a ton of people in the trades. There's a lot of people leaving. And the people who are there are pretty darn old. Um, So a lot of the trades, at least in my area, uh, don't have a ton of workers. So they would have had to go without heat for a couple weeks and pay a massive bill. But because they rent, they didn't have to do that. And because I have skills which uh, help me uh, run a a profitable business renting things out, I didn't have to pay $1,500 either. So as you can see, the market matched me with them and uh, the overall situation Um, was good for both of us. Um, So that's one point. Uh, The other point is uh, people can use their money in all sorts of different ways. And whenever you're dealing with an economic question, you always have to ask the question, compared to what? In fact, if you just ended anything that you have to say in economics with the words compared to what, you'd probably be doing well. And in the case of renting, we have to ask, okay, sure, maybe the renter could come up with a down payment and closing costs and all these things, but would that help them and compared to what? And the compared to what could be um, with that money, they could have uh, purchased a more reliable uh, vehicle to get to and from work, meaning they have um, less variability in income, they have uh, less surprise repairs, And maybe that would be a better use of their resources. In fact, it probably would be. Um, Then when we talk about getting a mortgage, well, that means that you're up for the variability in the market. And if you're going to move, all of a sudden you could take a surprise hit. You could be underwater. A lot of people had that happen after the boom-bust cycle from uh, 2008. Um, And they they don't have to bear that risk. And mortgage companies are a lot less flexible than uh, than than landlords are. If you can't pay a month on your mortgage or so, if all of a sudden you could just get repossessed, your credit is getting pummeled, landlords, not all, but some um, can deal with, uh, can flatten out a lot of that variability in their income and ensure that they don't have any surprise costs. So there's a lot going into it. Um, and finally, if you really think that landlords are making money hand over fist and, um, you know, are exploiting people, then, uh, put your money where your mouth is, go buy a property, rent it out, pay the costs of repairs, do all that and, uh, rent it out to tenants at a price that you think is fair. Honestly, go ahead, (laughs) have fun and, uh, email me when you, uh, when you get back from that most people find that um that having tenants is an enormous bother and that it's much more costly and difficult than they imagined and that the margins are a lot slimmer and uh yeah that that can be true for a lot of people so there you go if you really think that they're just making money go and do it yourself go and expand the supply and thereby given the a a fixed demand, you will reduce the price for all in your market. So that can be a tangible step that you take, but proceed with caution. Okay. Um, Let's see. This one's going longer than I thought. 32 minutes of talking at this moment, and we still have to get questions from the mailbag after all. But we'll do one last economic misunderstanding. That's one that I heard on a recent podcast. Um, I won't name it and I won't call out the person who I think it was was wrong. They were talking about. Wait a minute. This is two podcasts I've heard just back to back. So that's why it it made the list. It's a popular problem. The idea that uh, our capitalist system relies on continued growth; otherwise, it will collapse. That's ridiculous. Like seriously, that's ridiculous. If we wanted to have a smaller, thriving economy, like, yeah, of course we could do that. Um, In a way, I don't even know how to answer this objection because typically you kind of have, like, this just comes out of nowhere. Why would that be a problem? Remember what I described earlier about there's companies, people work for them, resources go in, resources come out if you had an a a series of companies that made up um made up the economy each one of them um was very efficient and could take in small amounts of uh of value and produce large amounts of value and uh they never they never grew or expanded what would the problem be with that lots of value is created everybody would be able to be wealthy because there's a lot of value um Honestly, what is the problem? There's no issue with that. I think what this is coming from is um, there's what's called Keynesian economics. I think I said that right. I don't care because I, d- I don't like John Maynard Keynes. So if I if I messed up his his name, first he's dead, so he won't know, and uh, and and second, I think he earned at least that amount of disrespect. But it's the idea that uh, everything is based on consumption and that consumption drives the economy, that somehow if we stopped consuming massive amounts, this would crash everything. Uh, That's not really true. Um, You often hear, well, if we're going into a depression, we want everybody to go out and spend, spend, spend. As usual, people aren't asking the question, well, compared to what? And when you have um, when you have money and I hate talking about money, I prefer talking about resources because money gets, um, money gets people all confused. So if, if you have resources, we'll put it that way, you can either, um, trade those resources for something that you would, uh, you would prefer. So let's say you have your labor and, um, it pools up in the form of money. So you have, um, you have, a, a oh gosh, darn it. We're back at money. We're going with money. All right. So, you have a bunch of money. You can either buy things, consumption, or you can save it, or you can invest it. So, you have those three options. Now, if you spend that money, then that means it goes to, say, a company and they produce you something and they give it to you. If you save that money, then it goes into a bank. And now it gets very complicated, but I shall simplify. Um, The standard story is that uh, those become deposits and those deposits in the bank are then used as reserves to lend out to other people. And then those loans go and purchase things or those loans go and invest in stuff. So those loans themselves count as the bank investing. So they are um, investing in debt. And uh, they're using your money to do that. And based on how in-demand deposits are at that moment will be how much they will pay you um, for your rate of return in your savings account. So, option three is you invest it. So, recall, savings isn't it being held off the market like it just is sitting under your mattress. That is, the bank is investing it. So, we have... Now, I know I'm belaboring this, consumption, the bank investing it, or you investing it. So when it gets invested by whoever, that means that those things go to either hiring workers somewhere, or they go into maybe research and technology. They could go into expanding the um, production of resources. Or it could, so a new factory, or it could go into um, uh, driving processes to increase quality. So all of these would be ways to make those companies have to take in less value and be able to produce more value. So if you imagine that uh, everybody decided to consume less and they, um, they invested more, We wouldn't crash the economy at all. Instead, all of our resources would be channeled into making our existing companies um, more and more efficient. And that means that we would need less and less resources, less and less labor to create more and more wealth. And again, we could then become wealthier, all of us. And that doesn't rely on consumption. Um, It's easy to think... um, uh, just imagine you're a farmer and you're given a bunch of corn. You said, all right, I'm going to make myself nice and wealthy. All right. We, you know what? I'm in a community of farmers. How are we going to become wealthy? We got two options. Either we can take all this corn and plant it. That's called investment. Or we can all eat the corn. <laughs> that's called investment. Or, I'm sorry. That's called consumption, right? We can consume all the corn or we can plant all the corn. So which one do you think is gonna be a wealthier society? The one that eats their corn or the one that plants their corn? This is the easiest question one can possibly answer, which is why I'm always so confused why people say that the economy just re- requires constant consumption or a constant growth. No, you could, you could just invest things and you would become more efficient and more wealthy what 's the issue um, if you really wanted to keep the quality and the quantity of all goods fixed so there is literally zero growth well then the thing on the other side of the equation would drop we would just require less inputs as we advanced in productivity um, and that's totally an option like if we collectively as the market made those economic decisions to want less things and we continued to um, have uh, productivity gains in our companies, then that would mean that the overall wealth would remain the same, right, if we didn't increase anything. And um, we would require less natural resources, less resources of labor and capital to get those same things. We would just have more, um, more free time, more vacations. Um, now, is it true that if we decided to reduce the overall output economically, that we could have bankruptcies and things like that? Well, yes, of course, the market would correct. But all that's saying is that when we collectively are saying, hey, we don't need as many goods, well, then there's going to be companies producing less goods. Like, yeah, obviously. And the ones which are least efficient will be the first to go out of the market, disappear or go bankrupt. Yeah, that's how economics works. It's no problem. That's not the system um, going awry. That's the system matching the amount that um, it's going to produce with the amount that the consumers would like to have produced. No issues. Okay, so I think we covered five, six problems. I'm going to call this six-ish common misconceptions in economics. This could be something that I periodically do if you have particular economic uh, questions or there's some misconceptions that you just um, would like me to answer. I'm happy to do so. I hope this was at least halfway coherent. Um, I I just wrote down a few of these and I tried to kind of of ad-lib as we go. So I hope I explained this clearly enough. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. Question one. Why is a cheesecake called a cake when it's actually a pie? Uh, okay. Um wow. Uh okay, I see the point. Uh, I think that's there's I'm I'm taken back. I guess to answer your exact question because the world has fallen and we 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 swim through a world in chaos and confusion. Men love darkness rather than light. Um this is a clear oversight. It is a pie. It has a crust, sometimes even a graham cracker crust. In fact, most of the time, like a pie, um, there are such things as custard pies. So I don't see how that's much different than a cheesecake. In fact, I would say that um, that is certainly all in the same category. Oh, my word. Um, The one thing I can think of is I believe that cheesecakes sometimes include flour. That said, they don't always. And there's also no baked cheesecakes, which are absolutely some type of pie or tort or something. Um, And that said, a lot of people use flour to thicken um, apple pies uh, and other stuff. So, yes, this is a clear oversight. Um, Everybody listening, please refer to cheesecake as cheese pie from now on. I think uh, last episode or the one before, we answered a a question where we talked about how language was meant to match reality. And this is a clear incongruity. So um, good question. I think that we need to change that and match our language to reality. Um, Three cheers for the cheese pie. Um, We have another food-based question today. What constitutes a chicken salad? No, what, I'm sorry, what constitutes a salad? Is a chicken salad? Is a tuna salad a salad? Does it have to have vegetables? It seems like anything can be a salad these days. What is a salad? Um, This is a perfect question because it's tying into our food and our language theme. I actually know the answer to this. Um, salad comes by way of, it comes into English by way of French and of course as a Latin root. And, uh, it's, it's got the S-A-L, so sal, um, which comes from salt. That's like salt in Latin. So the Romans used to eat salad, like they would take a bunch of veggies, fresh veggies, and they would make up a dressing, which would include salt. So it could have vinegar, it could have oil, but it had salt. It was supposed to be a little bit savory, it had savory dressings. And, the word salad, the the term salad, came from the fact that it had that dressing on it. So this explains why if you take a bunch of vegetables and put a dressing on it, it is a salad. And if you take chicken or tuna, you're making up a dressing. You know, it could be mayo-based or whatever, but it's a type of dressing that you're mixing it up with. Um, I think it's important to note that we say chicken salad or tuna salad and by naming those ingredients, it does show us what type of salad it is because there's a clear difference between one made of chicken and one made of leaves. We don't say I'm making a a leaf salad or a, a vegetable salad. That's assumed, but it's not. Um, so we're using salad in an analogous way when we talk about chicken and tuna salads. It's not exactly the same, but it acknowledges that by naming the key differentiating feature that it has meat or in the case of pasta it has pasta in the place of the vegetable that we would have assumed if they had just said salad so that is the reason glad i could clear that up for you and uh we'll stop there guys um if you have any questions email them into the gordian knot 101 at gmail.com. Feel free to visit the site, thegordianot.org. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, um, share it with your friends. And if you did not enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies. Um, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.